0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell of Back to the Bible Canada. This week, we're continuing Dr. John Newfeld's series in the book of Romans entitled The Heart of the Gospel. Today, Dr. Newfeld will be talking about leaning your ladder against the wrong wall. I'm excited to move forward in this series today. So open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 3 and let's join Dr. Newfeld.
1: I wonder if you've ever heard the story of the man who is working all of his life to climb the ladder of success, only to find out that in the end, that ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. Let me try to add some perspective to that. Take the businessman who gets hired in a great company when he's young, spends countless hours in the office, gradually impresses his bosses, gradually climbs the corporate ladder, finally makes a very large salary, finally able to do the things he's always wanted only to find out that this has all come at the price of neglecting his wife and his kids and even his own faith. That's because the hours were demanded of him, began to consume everything so that he was effectively working seven days a week. Soon his wife leaves him. The kids don't know him, want nothing to do with him, and he's left alone. When he finally retires, it is a retirement filled with despair. Is this what I worked for? Why did I deny myself all the happiness in life? I sacrificed everything and what I got in return was loneliness, no direction, a lack of meaning. I was succeeding in all the wrong ways. I climbed the ladder and it was leaning against the wrong wall. Well, that's just one example of what happens to all kinds of people and countless different circumstances. All of us have to decide what to live for. People will spend countless hours and expend huge effort and make great sacrifices for their goals. I know of one man who sacrificed his marriage in order to play golf more. But What will it be worth in the end? You see, before you undertake anything, it is right to ask ourselves, Will what I'm doing matter 100 years from now? See, it's an interesting question, don't you think? Trying to go through your daytimer and answering that question is a sobering one. Climbing a ladder only to find it leaning against the wrong wall. Today as we're going to learn a little lesson from the harsh experience of Israel as a nation. Remember, Israel is the chosen people of God, but they have a huge problem with obedience to the God who chose them. After having led Israel for 40 years, Moses told them, and I'm reading from Deuteronomy 29 verse 4, but to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. See, that's startling. The same people who had seen all the miracles of Egypt had something defective. God had not yet transformed their hearts. They didn't understand. They couldn't see. They were incapable of hearing. Israel's history from the time of the exodus out of Egypt until the time when they were defeated by the Babylonians and utterly destroyed as a nation, a period of over a thousand years, was a sorry history of disobedience, idolatry, and then failure. They're constantly deserting their God. They're constantly disobeying his commands. They took advantage of the poor. They formed alliances with sinful nations. They went their own way and even persecuted God's prophets who warned them to turn from their sins. They put many prophets to death. And finally, God punished them by sending the Babylonian empire against them who dragged them into captivity and they suffered horribly. But then something amazing happened. God was gracious and Israel came back to the promised land. And Israel repented, led by Ezra and Nehemiah through some outstanding revivals— The greatest revivals in Israel's history, Israel made a commitment to abandon every form of idolatry and give themselves to the law. They were bound and determined not to repeat the mistakes of their ancestors, to follow their pathway to open rebellion. Instead, they committed themselves to keep the law, and in time, they would raise up a group of experts in the law called Pharisees, who existed to guarantee that Israel never fell into the sin that brought about the Babylonian captivity in the first place. So they refused to become just like any of the other nations ever again. They would be the people of God, the people of the law, the people known as separated unto God. And eventually this too led to horrible suffering. The Syrian tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes, who reigned from 175 to 164 BC, demanded that the Jews accept Hellenization. That is, they should become modern and adopt Greek cultural practices, including the worship of Greek gods alongside of their own religion. And then that they involve themselves in Greek games, dressing in Greek clothing, adopting Greek architecture and all that stuff. Some did, even going so far as Through surgery, attempting to reverse circumcision in young men. Imagine that. But ultimately, the Jews resisted, and Antiochus responded in fury. He desecrated their temple, crucified tens of thousands of faithful Jews. Every year around Christmas, when we're celebrating Christmas, the Jewish community celebrates Hanukkah. It's a celebration of resisting and then ultimately defeating the darkness of Antiochus. It's a celebration of remaining faithful to the law. That's not the only time the Jews suffered for their commitment never to abandon the law. The Romans also hated the Jews because they did not submit. Initially, the Romans gave Jews allowances that permitted them to opt out of things like pouring out libations to Caesar and giving themselves to Roman practices. But the Roman patience with the people who were distinct from all the nations of the world was wearing thin. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, the Roman emperor Titus utterly destroyed the Jewish temple in Jerusalem at AD 70, slaughtered over one million Jews, and then sold over 100,000 of them to the gladiatorial games where they eventually died. See, I don't know if a nation has so suffered as the Jewish people have, and all because they kept themselves separate and gave themselves with zeal to keep the law of God. Ah, But as we're going to see, their ladder also was leaning against the wrong wall. In their zeal, they turned against their own Messiah. And now, if you followed me through Romans 1 and 2, you'll have studied what Paul said about the judgment of God. The Gentiles and the Jews are equally guilty before God. Both Jew and Gentile are under the wrath of God. The situation is quite desperate for both groups. If you were a Jew, you might answer, well, what am I supposed to do? Exactly what does God want? I mean, first we rebelled, then we were punished, then we obeyed, and we suffered again. Remember, it's possible to climb a ladder which is against the wrong wall. It's possible not only to do that in business and in our careers, we can do that in our religious convictions. In Romans 10, we're going to learn that Israel pursued the law not as a law of faith, but as if it were a law of works. In other words, in spite of a zeal to keep the law, they completely misunderstood the intent of the law. They thought that after their law-keeping, God owed them something. Law-keeping earned a blessing, at least so they thought. And after having done what God demanded, God was now placed in a relationship of obligation. God was indebted to bless them, so they thought. But that's not the only wrong. It is that they were dishonoring God in doing this. I want you to think about all the religious zeal that's driving the world today. I mean, right now, as you know, our world is staggering under the weight of religious zeal. In Islam, we're witnessing a great revival of religious zeal. And the world trembles. But the zeal is found in every place in the earth, among religions and among those who have no religions. I mean, not long ago, we were speaking about a revival of atheism and with it, an attempt to keep all God talk out of every single public arena. The world also trembles under this. It is oppressive. Everyone thinks they're right. Even among those of us in the West, we believe that democracy is right. That's why we keep insisting that the only hope for certain parts of the world is to bring them democracy. If they could only see that, all would be well. So there's both a zeal to keep democracy out of the Muslim world and a zeal to bring it in. Everyone, no matter who he is, has a fervency, is climbing a ladder, making great sacrifices to get ahead. And the judgment of God is already beginning to fall on this shaky planet. Whether you're religious or not religious, your ladder is against the wrong wall. Soon the wall you trust in will collapse and you'll stand before an incensed, angry God. He demanded your ladder be placed upon an attitude of profound gratefulness to him, trusting him for your daily bread. So how can we know our sins are really forgiven? How can we know we're really acceptable before God? How can you be sure you're going to heaven? See, that's the most important question any human being can ask. It's the basic question. It's the fundamental question. It's more important than the question of how you'll earn your living. Remember, we've learned that each person, regardless of their upbringing, has an innate knowledge of God. We've also learned that everyone has suppressed that knowledge and has knowingly broken God's laws. And we have learned that God will hold each one of us accountable to the Jew first and then to the Greek or the Gentile for God shows no favoritism. The Gentiles will be condemned for an internal law written in their conscience, and the Jew will be condemned for they had the perfect law of God and refused to obey it. So in essence, here's what Romans says. We're all playing on an even playing field. Jews and Gentiles, the field has been leveled. Both stand on the same level ground. But this leads to an important question. What is the Old Testament all about? If all that has been accomplished in that long period of history is no more than to highlight Israel's sin and level the playing field between God's chosen people and the Gentiles, does that mean that all this attempt to be faithful is unimportant? Does that mean pursuing the law and learning obedience doesn't even matter? See, when we come back, we're going to address that most important
0: question. So where is your ladder leaning? Dr. Newfeld talked about the importance of knowing what we're striving for in life and what our priorities are. We really have two choices, to live a life that is for God's glory, to seek His will, or to turn away from Him and instead chase after the world. How can we be faithful to God? Well, we'll discover more as we continue our study with Dr. Newfeld right after this break. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you've been enjoying this five-week series on Romans, the heart of the gospel. In this series, we've been addressing a number of difficult issues, from creation to sin to the judgment day to the cross. I hope that God has been challenging you as we've journeyed through Romans so far. And if you'd like to add this series to your own personal collection, or even as a gift to your church library, you can purchase it on CD for only $20 plus shipping and handling. To order your copy today, just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Now let's rejoin Dr. Neufeld as we continue in Romans chapter 3.
1: Romans 3, 1-2 begins by asking a very important question. Let's let Paul ask it. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Romans chapter 3 should be a text that every Christian knows very well. This chapter is the heart of the Christian faith. It begins with a presumption that we're all sinners and guilty before God and shows how we can be forgiven. But before Paul will talk about the cross, he must talk about the glory of God. He wants to show what a great God we have, that his ways are righteous and just and altogether praiseworthy. We ought to stand back and admire the long history of how God began to reveal himself to Abraham and how that revelation led to the glory of Calvary and, and, and what forgiveness and salvation mean and how that came about because of God's remarkable wisdom. So at the outset of Romans 3, Paul shows us how we know that God is righteous and faithful. And Paul answers that by inviting us to understand the history of the Old Testament. So how do we know that God is righteous and faithful? Well, we know it through the long history of Israel. The character of God is displayed in the Old Testament. God is seen as wrathful and loving. God is a God of justice, and he is reconciling sinners to himself. God is all-powerful, and yet he's gentle. God is holy, other, beyond anything that we can imagine, and yet he's personal. And one of the greatest things that we can learn about God in the Old Testament is that He's the covenant-keeping God. In fact, that's what Joshua testified at the end of his life. I'm reading from Joshua 21, verse 45, where Joshua says, "...not one word of all the good promises the Lord God had made to the house of Israel had failed all came to pass." In other words, the Old Testament and the New Testament as well is a record that God has never broken a promise, not once. He's righteous and faithful. He has never been deceitful. He's never forgotten his word. He can be trusted. Lean your ladder against him. We learned that from the history of Israel. Now, if that's the case, and as Paul has been saying, the Jews are equally guilty before God, and if God has chosen them to be his people, What advantage do they have? If God is faithful and and said that he would bless them, then is God faithful? Is he righteous? And so Paul responds, the Jew has a great advantage. To begin with, he says, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And because of that, I want to add something else that every Gentile Christian must learn to do. Christians owe the Jews an eternal debt of gratitude. Again, our text says that they have been entrusted with the oracles of God. And the word for oracles has the same root as word. The Jews have been entrusted with the word of God, the Bible, the divine book, the only divine book that human beings have. God chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He chose Moses. He chose Joshua and Samuel, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Ezra. And in the New Testament, he chose Peter and John and Paul. Each of these men who wrote down the oracles of God were what? They were Jews. This revelation from God is, in fact, a Jewish book. The Jews wrote it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we who are Gentiles have received it from their hands. But also, the Jews also employed full-time scribes to carefully and painstakingly not only copy the text, but then to put two numbers on the top of every page. One number indicated the words on every page, and the second indicated the number of letters on every single line, which they would then count from one copy to the next to make sure that each copy contained no errors. In fact, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in Israel— A completely intact copy of the book of Isaiah was found, dated around 200 years before Christ. Prior to that, the earliest copy we had of Isaiah was about 700 years after Christ. And when the scholars placed these two scrolls next to each other, scrolls that were 900 years apart—hear me now—900 years of copying— They found them to be of an incredible accuracy. This book, the Bible, the oracles of God, came to us through the Jewish people. I have a memory of visiting the shrine of the book. It's a museum in Jerusalem that highlights the preservation of Scripture. It houses the Isaiah scroll discovered at the Dead Sea, along with something called the Aleppo Codex, which comes from the 10th century A.D., But during my visit there, they were featuring a historical account of some of the instances in which the Jews guarded the sacred writings at the cost of their own lives. They simply refused to give them up. And had they done so, we would have no Bible today. We left the museum, the shrine of the book. And as we went, I had time to think about what I had seen. And I had a hard time controlling my emotions. I spoke privately with our Jewish guide, and he noticed my tears. And I said to him, I don't know how to properly express what I'm about to say, but I strongly feel I need to say something. I said "Helma, you know, I'm a Gentile Christian, and if you allow me the presumption, I'd like to speak to you on behalf of Gentile Christians, and if you would allow also the presumption of yourself standing here on behalf of the Jewish people, here's what I want to say to you. Thank you. Without you, I'd have no faith. I wouldn't know why Jesus came. I wouldn't know who God was. I would be without God in this world had not it been for the sacrifice your people have made, not just for yourself, but for the entire world and for my people as well. And then I said it to him a number of times. I just kept repeating myself, thank you, thank you, thank you. So let me say it again here on this venue Without the Jews, you and I would never have known about God, His great love for us, His faithfulness, and about the gospel of Jesus. We owe to the Jews an undying debt of gratitude. Our attitude, even to those among the Jewish people who reject the gospel, ought to be that. And those of you who joined back to the Bible on our Israel trip in the fall of this year are expected to carry this same attitude in your hearts as you visit the Holy Land. Therefore, there is an advantage to being Jewish. But you might say, well, how? On the day that Stephen, the first martyr, was martyred, he denounced Israel by demanding that they answer, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And if you want to paraphrase his next comment, it sounds like this. So when you joined in what the Roman Gentiles did when they crucified the Messiah, you acted exactly in the same fashion as you always have. See, imagine for a moment, a man entering into, let's say Cambridge University. It's one of the best universities in the world and will provide a future for all of its graduates, a future that allows them to become one of the elites of the world. Imagine this young man comes from a rich home and dad's paying for tuition, room and board and everything else. His health is excellent. Before he got there, he had been given the best tutors to get the best marks, and dad writes to him and tells him that he can keep getting any tutor he wants, and his dad is going to pay for it. There'll be no difficulties whatsoever. Now, I want you to imagine the young man fails all of his classes and drops out. Why? Because he didn't take the best use of all the advantages that had been offered to him. He frittered it away. His time was spent in the university pub or chasing gals or or having parties. His parents were faithful, but he was not. Does he have advantages? Yes, much in every way. That's what Paul says of Israel. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. But what if some were found to be unfaithful? You know, when we come back to this same discussion tomorrow, I want us to see why it is that the failure of Israel tells us much about the faithfulness of God. See, the Jewish advantage did not lead to positive results. That's the history of Israel. And that's what Paul says in verse 3a. He says, what if some were unfaithful? What if some had their ladder leaning against the wrong wall? That's why Paul will say that no Jew has an advantage on Judgment Day. Now, it's, it's so easy to read this and simply shake our heads and feel dismissive about Israel. But perhaps it's a lesson that those of us who grew up with a Bible and biblical teaching need to hear today. It is possible to be so near to the truth, to become so familiar with it, to even become comfortable with it, that in our hearts we secretly despise it and find to our horror that a lifetime of hearing the word has made us inoculated to the truth. We feel comfortable in arguing with it, in not taking it seriously, and not feeding on it every day, and not bending the knee, and saying, may your ways win and not mine. What Paul will say next when we visit this theme again should frighten us. What if our casual attitude around the word highlights God's righteousness when he condemns us in the final day? What if our ladder is leaning against
0: the wrong wall? John, thanks so much for a great message today. And as you were speaking, I was reminded of the fact that we're going to have the privilege and opportunity to visit Israel uh, this October, November. And I was reminded of the opportunity that I had while I was there last to be in the place where they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. You've been there. What was your experience like?
1: Well, I was overwhelmed by what I saw. Of course, I'd seen so many pictures of it in the past, but... When we went by it, I recognized it in an instant, and I recognized how historic that place was. If uh, you don't know the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls, I'm just gonna say that to everyone who's listening, uh, you need to come to Israel and we're gonna explain what happened and why those few caves up in the Judean wilderness are so significant and uh, why we can look at them and say, wow, there's so much evidence that I can trust my Bible because of the way in which it was recorded and uh, transmitted to
0: us. Wow. What a great reminder of the faithfulness of God's Word. It is trustworthy. Thanks so much, John, and we look forward to hearing more from you again tomorrow. Thank you, Ben. Leading our ladder against the wrong wall is something that we should all be absolutely aware of. As Jesus' followers approaching Judgment Day... We want to make sure that we've done everything possible to live in a way that is pleasing to God. Granted, this isn't always as simple as it sounds, but He is faithful to those who love Him. Tomorrow we'll be talking about how God will always get the glory. I hope you'll join us with Dr. John Newfeld on Back to the Bible Canada. Much of our world today doesn't understand the love of God and the need for a relationship with Him. It's frightening to know that so many people don't want to connect with God because they don't believe He'll provide everything that they need at back to the bible canada we want to become a means to change people's perspective of god and the relevance of his word we want to tell the world your community your friends family neighbors all of those you work with about a god who loves them unconditionally an almighty compassionate and merciful god that desires to have a relationship with them you know your help makes this possible Your prayers encourage and empower us, and your financial support provides the very real practical costs of ministry, including the program that you're hearing today. So please consider offering a financial gift, especially at this time of year, your gifts mean so much. You can make a donation at any time at backtothebible.ca or by simply calling us at 1 800 663 2425. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.